Lane to come uh, and give us uh, the scripture reading uh, from Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Peace and hope. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elaine, uh, for sharing the word, um, the scripture reading uh, for us this morning. This morning, I, I want to spend some time to, to continue this book of Romans, uh, chapter 5. Um, and, and I think uh, there are some important um, truth that I want us uh, to take home today. Now, before we start, I just want to quickly, uh, maybe, you know, just to ask those of you who are younger, you know, uh, last little while, uh, whenever I meet up with um, younger pastors, uh, sometimes, you know, they, they use these things. And I have to make sure, you know, what, 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 what do they mean? Um, the first one is GIF, you know, uh, you could pronounce it GIF or GIF. Uh, but it stands for graphic interface format. You know, this is where you put some image that adds color to your words. The next one, LOL. Um, and actually, I got this wrong the first time. Um, you know, sometime, and this is a true story, the story of a mom who thought LOL means lots of love. So she sent a text to a college-age daughter your grandma died, LOL. True story. TTYL. It stands for talk to you later. 
Um, IDEK, this is a pretty, oh, I, I mean, I had to search these up uh, when, when they send uh, these texts to me. It's, it stands for, I don't even know. BAE is before anyone else. Uh, now, what do you think SMH is? Uh, it stands for uh, shaking my head. Uh, and this is a, a good one. I-M-H-O. It stands for in my humble opinion. Now, it's interesting that sometimes, you know, uh, as older folks, uh, we might not get used to uh, the term, the terminology. But in some way, that's what Paul has been doing for us in the first four chapters in Romans. Paul is teaching us the gospel insider terminology. And now in chapter 5, he's going to short showing us what a difference these things made in how you see life, particularly how you see suffering. For four chapters, he's giving you the essentials of justification by faith. And, and if I were to give out some sort of certificate today, I believe that for those of you who have gone through all the Romans in the first four chapters, could get a certificate with the Gospel 101, because that's what Paul has been doing. He, he's been teaching us and giving us the term, the terminology, and now he's going to show us how these things transform you the way you in, interpret affliction, how well you actually understand the Gospel, how much you actually understand and believe it, it demonstrates by the spiritual life rises or falls. Every significant, every spiritual growth in your, in your life goes back to growing in your understanding of the implication of what God has done for you in the gospel. It's like I said in the first time, in the first chapter, the gospel is not, it's not just the way we begin. The gospel is like a well, not by widening the circumference of your knowledge, but deeper into what that means for our lives. In this chapter, God, Paul go, goes from argumentation for the gospel to celebration of the gospel. Martin Luther calls these verses the happiest text in Romans. They are a miniature version of Romans 8. And you will see the word rejoice uh, come up quite frequently. And the main focus is how the gospel transform how you see suffering. So the first verse here, therefore, let me just stop there. What, what is therefore? I heard it said that Romans is built on four therefores. We saw the first one in chapter, in, at the end of chapter 3. When Paul says that after Paul finishes laying out his case against the law, he says, therefore, we and we and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand. Um, it, it means it concludes that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. 
is going to take something else to save us. The second, therefore, in, in Romans 8, 1, when he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means we have access to all the privileges of the Christian life that sons and daughters of God should have. And there's another key one, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, how you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In another word, now that you understand what God has given you in your salvation, therefore, you should give yourself without restriction to him. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, therefore, we have been declared righteous or we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace with God he refers to is not just subjective feelings that floods our heart with some serene feelings of calm. It's an objective reality of Christ's death had created for us. You know, feelings are important, of course, but feelings come and go. You know, it's the reality of of our standing with God that is important. I I point this out because a lot of us justify sometimes that that the primary purpose of our faith is is this happy feeling. You know, sometimes I I have an intense workout, I feel good. You know, sometimes I eat well, I feel good about it. But it goes beyond that feelings because it comes and goes. More importantly, the feelings of peace is whether whether you actually have peace with God, right? I mean, let let me just give you another example. Which one would you rather have? To go to the doctor with a headache, you have him do some tests, and him say, you're fine. This headache is nothing serious. Then go feeling fine and have him say, you have a brain tumor. You should base your feelings on on what you know to be true in reality. This morning, I I feel peace in my heart because I know I have peace with God, not vice versa. It is amazing how often people come up and say, I don't feel that God loves me. I don't feel that he is close. And they think that that means something is wrong. So I ask, why are you looking at your feelings for assurance instead of God's word? Most of us are very familiar with this, with this picture. This picture of a train. Uh, and this is how the order should be. You know, you have fact, you have faith, followed by your feelings. We know the fact that Jesus Christ declared us righteous so that we have the faith in believing the fact, followed by the feelings that, that God loves us no matter what. What if, if you base your entire faith on feelings instead of fact? You know, sometimes we, we believe our way into our faith, into our fact, but, but we, we, we need to believe our way into our feelings. Um. Sometimes we need to look at what the word of God says, not just based on the feelings. There is a prayer that I often pray. And it says that in Christ, 
there is nothing I could do that will make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. So this is a prayer that I often pray, you know, whenever I, I feel like, you know, I need to perform better, I need to preach better. And God always remind that in Christ, there is nothing that I could do that will make you love me more and nothing that I have done that makes him make love me less. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that we have obtained access through him by faith into this grace, which we now stand and we boast in the glory of God. Think of the word grace here as favor, because Paul's focus at this point is less getting us mercy for our sins and more about the favor status we have with God. We exist in a favor status world, like a child feels with a parent that they know that they love them. I mean, if you go to every single kid at BHRC and ask them, do you believe your parents love you this morning? I'm pretty sure all of them say, yes, they do. You know, J.I. Packer says that you can tell how much someone really understands Christianity by finding out how much they think about and cherish the thought of being God's child. He says that if this is not the thought that prompts and control his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This morning, I want to ask you, how do you feel when you go to God? Do you feel that God is generally disapprove of you? Like you need to negotiate with him to be better? Or do you feel like he's not listening or not concerned about what is going on in your life? Or do you come with awareness that he is a tender father who couldn't love you any more than he does? Sometimes our spiritual life is stalled because we don't really believe that God loves us. You know, it's funny, you know, uh, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. My, my kid uh, often stay away from me when they know that daddy is grumpy, uh, when daddy is in bad mood, they tend to stay away from me. But when I'm in good mood, you know, they, they love to play around me. They love to play with me, joke with me. And I think sometimes some of us might say, you know what, but, but my dad was never like that. It's hard for me to see God that way. And yes, I get that. But it's like I always says, evaluate your, your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly one, not your heavenly one. God is the father of whom you are always yearning for. God's love, you know, God's love is for you. And I'm so grateful that our heavenly Even if you run away from him, he will always be there for you. You have a God who after you had maybe run away from him, uh, run the other way, despising him, stood at the heaven's gate, 
waiting every day for you to come back home. And when he saw you coming home, he ran to you. God could not love you anymore. And we should pray with the knowledge that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As we saw in chapter 4, through the life of Abraham, hope is the assurance that God will keep all his promises. It is a hope rooted, and Paul will explain in a minute, in resurrection. The resurrection showed me that Paul explained um, that one day God is going to restore all that is broken down here on earth. At the end of the day, if nothing else worked down here on earth, I got the assurance that God is going to keep his promises. D.A. Carson says that I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can fix. And that's good news. Eventually, we all get disappointed. Something is going to go wrong in your life at a certain period of time. One of the things that Linda and I often try to teach Riley and Lauren is, is, is how to handle disappointments in life. Because there will be many disappointments. There will be many times when things will not work out for them. And I realized that, that you know, for me personally, you know, as, I, as my body gets older, I, I realized that I can no longer do the things that I used to do. You know, I remember when I was younger, you know, I could play basketball for three to four hours a day when I'm much younger. But nowadays, you give me five minutes, that's all I'm good for. But the point is this, is that it all fades at the end. But ultimately, our hope is resurrection. You know, on a serious note, sometimes God doesn't take the cancer away. Sometimes God doesn't take the pain away. Sometimes he doesn't stop the effects of aging. Sometimes he doesn't fix the marriage. It doesn't get reconciled. Sometimes the one who sinned against you isn't brought to justice. And sometimes some of us live with the pain daily. But that doesn't mean that without hope. Because you're not suffering from anything a resurrection can't fix. And this made me rejoice. Rejoicing, of course, is different from happiness. For many Christians get these confused. Happiness is contingent on what you want to happen happening. It's in the word. Joy is different. It's nothing to do with your happenings. Many Christians think that if you're not happy, that something is wrong. And we look at the scripture, you know, we look at, Psalms, you know, a lot of Psalms were just depressed in the sense that it's people going through suffering and affliction. You look at the life of Job, who has gone through all the suffering that he has gone through. And you look at Jesus, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. But Jesus was still someone who says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. This is a joy that comes to knowing that what you have with God is better than what you are missing in life. And what life promised you in his word is more secure than what you can guarantee on your own. And that's not only that. 
even, you know, we glory, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that affliction and or suffering produce perseverance or endurance. Rejoice in affliction, in suffering. What, what does it mean? Is Paul saying that were you, were you rejoice in pain for pain's sake because it shows people how righteous or tough he is? No, this is rejoicing in affliction because you know that the affliction or the suffering, no matter how great or how painful it is, is producing something in you of greater value than a pain-free life. Now, listen, you know, as believers, we are not stoic. We are not people who are unmoved by pain, detached. You know, Buddhism teaches that, that you not feel pain by detaching yourself from the world. And Christianity pushes us to experience it, to love it, to feel the pain. If you remember in Job, you know, uh, after he lost everything, he ripped his clothes off, shaved his ground, and it says, yet in all these things, Job sinned not. And many Christians, sometimes they see Job, they say, man, you know what, Job, you need a faith recharge. You need to pray more. But yet, Job understand what God is doing in his life. But trust God, because you know, even in that, God is up to something ultimately good. And some of that is in you. We know that affliction produces endurance. And perseverance is, is the ability to keep going when you experience no other earthly benefits from your faith. It is a test. Will you keep going when nothing is working out for you? Is God enough? You know, I think of the words of Corey Tamboon. Um, she has an amazing story. She is uh, a, a Nazi uh, concentration camp survivor. She said that I never really knew that God was all that I need until he was literally all I had. And I, and I think that sometimes, you know, we need to be in that place to say that, God, I, I have nothing. And you are all that I need. Now, there's another preacher who puts it well, Robert Smith Jr. He says that when faith is stripped to the bone, no marrow, no tendons, no muscles, no fat, no gristle, and all our props and crutches are gone. Our faith in God that he is good and is still on the throne is the only thing will keep you going. Suffering produces that. It produces things in you that you can learn no other way. Martin Luther says that there are three things that are necessary for understanding the scripture. They are prayer, meditation, and suffering. And this is what he says. He says that I credit the devil, the Pope, and all my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of the word. Through the devil's raging, they have turned me into a fairly good preacher. 
driving me into the gospel to death I will never have reached without their affliction. Suffering in the believer's life is like the coal that triggers your heater to come on. When the temperature in your house drops, your heater comes on and all this wonderful warm air starts pouring out through the vents. The cold temperature didn't make the warm air. Of course, your heater does that. But the cold temperature causes the, the, the heater to kick in. And that's how faith works. Suffering makes your faith kick on and pour new experiences of trust and confidence and even joy in God in the cold of suffering. And the colder the temperature gets, the hotter the furnace gets. And Paul went on to say, perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Character means that has gone through the furnace of affliction and had the impurities burned away. In 1 Peter, it says that when you suffer, your faith, more precious than gold, is being refined so it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. You know, in those days, they purified gold by heating up that everything that was not gold would burn away. And that's what happened. God has given, you know, God has given me personally so much. A great marriage, a family, health, a great church community. But how much is my joy and satisfaction depends on those things. And the furnace of affliction tests and purifies that in suffering, God may be trying to prune out, prune out some things that, that is in your life. Now ima- imagine this in, in the old days. Uh, whenever, whenever a shepherd finds a, a sheep that wanders away, I mean, when, when the shepherd found the sheep, sometimes the sheep breaks one of the, one of the legs of, of, of um, the lamb. Why does he do that? The reason he does that because for the next two to three months, for the, for the leg to be healed, the shepherd has to carry this lamb everywhere he goes. And it is a greater burden to the shepherd. But yet in those two to three months, the bond, the relationship that the lamb feels is like, this is, this is the only person that I need at this time. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I look to depend on Jesus Christ. Maybe God is trying to prune some of those things out in your life right now. Sometimes God does it. Even though in some good things, because he knows that there is nothing wrong with it to show you that, that he is sufficient. That, you, that we can't know until we know that he is all that we need. Or it may be simply that he, is to, that he wants to show you, allow you to experience how sufficient he is. If you remember, um, Jay spoke to us um, back in Easter Sunday about this ancient Japanese art, kintsugi. It literally means golden repair. You know, uh, the artist will break
aspects of the object's history, which as to his beauty, the goal made it, made it stronger. Suffering allows God to infuse the goal of his presence into the broken seams of your life. That produces hope. And this hope, the confidence that God will keep his promise Promises is working all things together for good that one day he will restore all things in the resurrection. And in the meantime, he will never leave you nor forsake you that he will not disappoint us. I realize that other than God, every other hope will disappoint us. Sometimes we put hope in our marriage and we realize that hope that our marriage disappoints us at times. We put our hope in our children and realize that our children will one day disappoint us. But Paul says that I have a better hope than any of these things, one that does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans, and he is the installment of God's love in our hearts. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It is the Holy Spirit Sunday. It is a day to remind us what is the Spirit comes to do to reveal His love to us. His main role is to remind you of God's presence with you. I describe it. I would describe it the Holy Spirit like like a father walking along with his son. Sometimes it's overwhelming that the Spirit comes in. And working in our life, sometimes subtle, that he is just right beside us. And mostly he directs us back to the logic of the cross. And he says that for a while we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though a good person might possibly dare to die. Here's Paul's logic is that sometimes it's, it's rare, but sometimes a, a, a heroic person sacrifices himself for someone they love. A heroic soldier saving his, 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 his buddy, a mother giving her life for her child. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God laying his life for us is not like me laying my life down for one of my kids. I was his enemy. He uses the very word in verse 10. That means he's lying down his life for me. It's like me laying down my life for somebody who has hurt me or my family. Imagine, you know, uh, you're losing a loved one uh, through a tragic accident. And, and the person who is responsible is that you went before the judge and said, you know, what? I will take his place. I would give away all my wealth so that he can start new. You say, who would do that? God did. And he did that to make us his sons and daughters. So how much, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall he save us from God's wrath through him? For while we are God, for, for, for if we were God enemies, we, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more? 
having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Saved by this life. His blood, if his blood secure my forgiveness, then his life guarantees that what God started, he will complete. His life proved that I have someone who is always pleading on my case before the Father who will never let me go. Someone is using a sovereign power to make all things work together for good. And someone one day who will resurrect me like he has been resurrected, wipe away every tear, make, a, make every sad things come untrue and heal me completely. There is a hymn, it says, that Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. The cross of Jesus proves his love for me, that he will never leave me. The resurrection proves its power that he will finish his job. It means I don't know what God is doing in suffering. People ask, what does it mean? But I know what it can't mean. It can't mean that God has forgotten you. The cross shows you that he hasn't forgotten you. It can't mean that God is no longer involved. Resurrection shows that you, that God will complete what he started. You are not forgotten. He is involved. And, and, and we won't always know what God is doing in our suffering. You know, I heard it says that at any given point, God is doing about 10,000 things in your suffering. And you are aware only three of them. But the cross and resurrection assure that you that, that he is indeed doing something. And, and that means the mark of those who believe the gospel is joy. You know, Tim Keller says that your belief in the gospel is measured by your ability to have joy in suffering. That you have peace with God. So let me tell you, this joy is not something that comes not, it's not something that comes naturally. That's why Paul is saying that it's a learning process. You have to choose along the way to rejoice. You know, in verse 3, it says that, but we also glory, we also rejoice in our suffering because we know. Rejoicing comes from reminding ourselves of something. It's not a natural feeling for us. It's amazing how many times in Scripture we are commanded to worship, not just if we feel like it, at least 40 times in Psalm, we are commanded to raise our hands in worship. Scripture is, is, is repeated with command to sing and shout because we're commanded to do these things whether we feel like it or not. Because worship is a choice by faith in a reality that God declared to be true in defiant of your feelings. Many of you come this morning. Do I feel like worshiping? Worshipping is not a reflection of how you feel. It's a reflection of what you know to be true. It is a declaration of what God is worthy of. Many people feel like they, they shouldn't worship if they don't feel like it. So when we come, we look in our heart and say, how do I feel? And if you feel good, then you worship. 
Worship doesn't begin by looking in here at our heart, at how we f- you feel, but it's up there at what God has promised. Worship is not a reflection of how you feel. It's a declaration of how worthy God is. And here's what happened. As you declare it, you begin to feel it. And sometimes even the posture of the body will actually guide your heart. And this is why I think we, we have all these commands to raise our hands and shout in worship. Sometimes when I kneel in prayer, I feel submissive. When I raise my hand and surrender, I feel surrender. When I open them, I feel needy. It's not that I feel these things and then reflect with what my posture is that I do these things with my hands as a statement of what I know to be true and then for my heart to begin to realign with that. Lastly, worship is a declaration of faith, not a depiction of your feelings. It's a defiant declaration that I am not how I feel. My life is not circumstances. It's not what about what circumstances may look like as it is. You know, when you walk through a deep season of suffering, it is very easy to allow the suffering to define you, to become your identity. Sometimes um, people identify themselves, uh, you know, I'm terminally ill. I'm a divorcee. I'm just a victim. In these moments, worship is a declaration that while suffering may be part of your story, is not your whole story or the end of your story. Worship re-enters your identity on who you are in Christ and declares defiantly the victory you have in him. So as we come to communion today, let's stand and worship and rejoice as declaration of what know to be true in defiant how we feel. Let's declare not what we feel, but what we believe God is worthy of. Let us pray.